Hello, welcome to the podcast of Chesbro Baptist Church. We are in a Sunday morning series, Preaching Through the Beatitudes. This is the second Sunday in the series, and the title of the message this morning is The Merits of Mourning. Please enjoy. All right, hold your place in 2 Corinthians 7, turn it over to Matthew 5. And uh, once you have that, I'm going to ask you to stand, respect, and reverence the Word of God as we read the Scripture. We're going to read a few verses in Matthew chapter 5, and uh, these will be our text verses this morning. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So you know we're going through a series where each Sunday we're taking one of the Beatitudes and just exploring it in Scripture. And the title of the message this morning is The Merits of Mourning. The Merits of Mourning. Let's pray. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be in your house today. Dear Lord, to come in here and fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ and to hear about the many blessings that you've given us, Lord, and the opportunities that we have to serve you. It's just an exciting thing. And Lord, as we stand here and we sit here in a few minutes with the Word of God open and as we explore your your revealed Word to us, Holy Spirit, speak to us in a supernatural way. Be with our service this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. So we are preaching through the Beatitudes on Sunday mornings, and one of the things that I want to keep fresh in our minds when it comes to the Beatitudes, that these aren't random statements that really don't have anything to do with each other. These statements build upon each other. They are progressive in nature. They are rungs on a ladder. They are steps on a staircase. One is more intense than the next one. And then they grow in intensity as you go throughout the Beatitudes. These traits are traits that true Christians hold. So when you come around a group of people and they exude or, or they show these traits in them, then you know you are around true Christians. Now, last week we talked, about, uh, we've talked about being poor in spirit, and it said that the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step, and the first step in this is being poor in spirit. We talked about what being poor in spirit is, that poor in spirit is spiritual poverty. And that in order to be spiritually rich, you have to be spiritually poor. And that's kind of the paradox here, okay, that Jesus is teaching us. You have to be spiritually poor before you can become spiritually rich. You have to empty your pockets, You have to stop holding on to the things that you want to hold on to. And here's the interesting thing. Anybody that wants to become a child of God, anybody that wants to become a Christian has to start here. You have to start at spiritual poverty. You have to come to God completely empty-handed. 
But not only that, do you start here as a Christian, even in your Christian life, you have to keep this, this attitude of humbleness about you. Several times Paul said, O wretched man that I am, he calls himself the chiefs of, chief of sinners. He tells Christians you ought not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. So this humility, this poverty that we must have is something that will bless us in the Christian life. Man, people say, man, once you get saved, you don't need the gospel anymore. I beg to differ. The gospel, my friend, will bless you in your Christian life for the rest of your life. Because in the gospel, we are the poor in spirit. So that's the first step. So the first step is being poor in spirit. But then the next step we see here is this morning. So not morning as in, good morning, everybody. But mourning as in grief, as in sorrow, as in mourning. And what's the paradox here? The paradox here is that the mourners are the blessed. That's the paradox. I don't know about you, but I've mourned before. and I didn't feel blessed. I've mourned. We all, we've all been there. We've mourned before, and in that not felt blessed. So what, what, what does he mean here, blessed are the mourners? Well, first we have to understand what he means by the word mourn. Did you know in the Greek there are nine words for mourn? And it's translated, uh, it's translated grief, sorrow, wailing. But there are nine words in the Greek for mourn. The ninth word, the last word, is the most intense mourn. And it is the mourning as in the loss of a family member. This intense grief and sorrow and mourning. And it's reserved for when you lose someone special to you. And we all understand what that feels like. We all know what, what that means, and so it's this ninth word, the most intense word that's being used here. We also have to understand that there are three types of mourning referred to in the Bible. The first type of mourning is a natural mourning. It is a physical mourning, and this natural mourning is, of course, when you lose someone dear to you. Now, the morning in this verse, uh, is, is that the morning that this verse is talking about? Does it refer to natural morning? Well, in some sense, I believe it is. But in a broader sense, let's ask this question. Is everybody in the world who mourns blessed? No. Is everybody in the world who mourns comforted? No. Now listen, I, listen, I am not telling you not to take this verse and, 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 and use it at a funeral. I'm not telling you not to do that because bless God, when it comes to a child of God, this is 100% truth. Let me tell you, there's coming a day where you will be comforted. And as a child of God, mourners will be comforted one day. That is a promise to us as Christians. And that is a blessed promise to us. We have a hope in Christ. 
So listen, that is absolutely uh, uh, an, an excellent verse to use at a funeral. But I want you to understand that there's interpretation and there's application and there's a difference. For every verse in Scripture, there is one interpretation. Now, you can take that verse and it, apply it in many different ways as long as that application... I believe, as a preacher, you have to explain what the original interpretation is. You have to be true to the Scripture. But your application has to agree with the rest of the Bible. And I believe that's a 100% good way of interpreting the Bible, of, of getting the message of the Bible out there. So look, referring this to, to natural mourning, when it comes to a child of God, the rest of the Bible is 100% in agreement with that. But is it the contextual interpretation of the verse? In the context of the verse where it is in the Bible, what's said before it, what's said after it. Is that the context of the verse? Well, let's look at the context. The very first, the verse before it says, poor in spirit. I told you last week, people, people have read that verse in the past and then gave away all their possessions. Like, to where they have nothing. Give away everything they own because they think poor in spirit, that's what it means. Poor in spirit does not mean to give away everything you own. And if you do, let me be there where I can get some of it, okay? Poor in spirit does not mean to give away every... In fact, it's in the name poor in spirit. This is a spiritual poverty. So while this direct interpretation of this verse is not physical, natural mourning but you can't apply it that way, and it's absolutely 100% in line with the rest of the Bible. There's a second type of mourning, and we'll get to the true type in a minute, but there's a second type of mourning in the Bible, and that is a sinful mourning. So first we have natural mourning, and then we have sinful mourning. You say, can there be sinful mourning, sinful sorrow, sinful grief? Well, absolutely they can. Let me give you a couple of examples. King Saul, um, King Saul did a lot of things that he wasn't supposed to do. One thing in particular that he did that he wasn't supposed to do was he offered a sacrifice. He wasn't supposed to do that. He was the king. The king does not take on priestly duties the same way as a priest cannot take on uh, a kingly duties. And in the Bible, a priest could not be king and a king could not be a priest in the law. You couldn't do that. It, you weren't supposed to do that because there's only one person who was a king and a priest and that's Jesus Christ. He is the only one. Then we become like him. He makes us kings and priests. Hey, but before Jesus, you couldn't do that. A king could not take on the, the, the duties of a priest. He could not do that. And Samuel came up and saw this. He was like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Obedience is better than sacrifice. What are you doing here? And of course, King Saul, he showed remorse and he showed grief and he showed sorrow for what he did. But it wasn't real. It was sinful. 
King Saul wasn't genuinely sorry for what he did. You know what he was sorry? He was sorry he got caught. He was sorry for how it made him look, but it wasn't genuine. And think about Judas. Oh, Judas, he betrayed Jesus with a kiss and he got the 30 pieces of silver and he went into the priest and he was just so overcome with grief over what he had done that he tried to give the silver back to him and they wouldn't take it because it was blood money. So he took the silver and he threw it at the priest's feet and ran out weeping. Man, that sounds like sorrow and grief to me. You know, there is something that a lot of people really don't think about. They know it, but they don't put it together. Did you know Judas wasn't the only one to portray Jesus that day? He wasn't the only one to portray Jesus. Peter betrayed him too. Maybe not to the same extent Judas did. But man, Peter is standing out there and, and Peter is standing in the earshot of Jesus in a minute, Jesus is going to lock eyes with Peter so he's within earshot, he's within eyesight, and he denies that he knows the Savior three times, even one time, cussing and saying, no, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. And then the, the rooster crowed and Jesus locked eyes with him. And he knew what he did. And he ran out weeping. Now, what's the difference? What's the difference? Well, Peter, he was, his sorrow was genuine because he came back. Judas didn't. In fact, the Bible says that Judas killed himself and went to his own place. The Bible tells us he went to hell, unrepentant. But he was sorrowful. It was sinful sorrow. Let me give you another example. The kingdoms in the book of Revelation, the kings of the earth and the kingdoms of the earth, they're just sitting back and they're getting wealthy off Babylon. They're getting wealthy off, off the harlot Babylon and they're fulfilling their lust and they're fulfilling their greed and they're filling their coffers and their bank accounts are getting big and they're living in the big mansions and they're sailing in the big lot, the big yachts and man, they're having a good old time. And then the judgment of God comes and Babylon burns and it's being destroyed and it's sinking into the earth and Babylon is tearing apart and they see this city that they got rich off of it's burning it's being destroyed and they cry and they moan and they mourn and they have sorrow and they have grief because they can't fulfill their lust anymore they can't fulfill their greed anymore there is a sinful sorrow. But then there's a third type of sorrow, a third type of mourning that we're going to talk about today. And that is spiritual mourning. Spiritual mourning. So we're going to explore this idea. What does it mean to spiritually mourn? What does that mean to have godly sorrow, if you will? What does that mean? Well, let me ask, I'm going to ask three questions. I'm going to give you three simple answers, and then I'm going to explain my answers to you. Question number one, what am I supposed to mourn spiritually? What am I supposed to mourn spiritually? Well, I'm not, just like last week, I'm not going to hold you in suspense. 
I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now what we're supposed to mourn spiritually. The Bible is very clear about this. You're to spiritually mourn sin. You are to spiritually mourn sin. You are to mourn sin. We are to mourn the, uh, our, our, our state in sin, our personal state in sin. We are to mourn the effects of sin. Okay? Who's sin? Well, number one, you're mourned for the sin around you. Man, the Bible says in Psalms 119.36, my eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. Christian, when you see what's going on in the world around you, when you see what's going on in your country, does that do anything to you? Do you mourn for the sin around you? You mourn that babies are being killed? You mourn that the, the country and our world is just going the way of all, of all Satan and going the way of all evil? Does that do anything to you or do you not think twice about it? Are you bothered by it? Look, there's a difference. We'll get to this in a minute. There's a difference in being bothered by sin and fearing it. Okay, uh, I'm going to get to that in a minute. Uh, Ezekiel 9, 4. The Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on, their, on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are committed in its midst. So what God is telling this angel is, I want you to go through Jerusalem. And everybody that sees the sin around them and mourns it and hates it and it hurts their heart and it hurts their soul and, and it just the seeing in this sin, it just they're torn apart by the sin that they see around them. Everyone that's like that, I want you to go through and put a mark on their foreheads. Now, that word mark in the Hebrew is the word, is the, is the letter taf. It's the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it's taf. That's what mark is translated as. In Hebrew, it's just the letter taf. Now, in ancient Hebrew, do you know what taf looks like? It's a cross. Uh, it's not anymore. The Hebrews changed it. But they can't change what it used to be. It was a cross. And so in the Old Testament, he's saying, look, everybody that mourns the sin around them, that they're, they're different. There's something special about them. I want you to protect them. So you go through the city and everyone that mourns the sin, I want you to put the cross on their forehead because they are protected. They're protected. Luke 19, 41, when he approaches Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over. Jesus, weeping, mourning, in sorrow because the sin of Jerusalem, because the Savior is there. The Messiah has come and they missed it. Jesus knows in 70 AD it's going to burn. And it's going to be taken away from them. And Jesus knows it's not going to be given back to them until 1948. Jesus knows this. What does he do? 
He mourns over it. He's sorrowful for it. Like I said, you have to strike a balance. I think it's a pendulum that swings both ways, and you have to strike a balance because if you go too far over this way, then the sin of the world, you actually, it actually runs your life. You think about it constantly, and you live in fear. But then it swings so far the other way that you don't care about it and you ignore the sin and there's nothing you can do about it. And I think the middle of the road is where we need to be is we need to have a healthy, it is healthy to mourn over the sin around you. It is a very healthy thing. Jesus did it. You are supposed to do that, but without living in fear. You don't live in fear. But you did is healthy to mourn the sin around you. And I'll explain why that's healthy in just a minute. But here's the thing. It's easy. It's a lot easier to mourn the sin around you than it is to mourn your own sin. To mourn your own sin. And that's what, that's the second thing we're to mourn. Our own sin. You see, that's what a God centered spiritual mourning is a deep grief over the sin in our lives and the sin around us. And what it is, it's a sensitivity to sin. Are you sensitive to sin? Can you pick up on it? Say, oh, oh, no, there's something wrong there. There's something off about that. I think there's something in the Bible about that. Can you pick up on it? Are you sensitive to it? You see, when the Bible says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed blessed are those that mourn, what he's saying is, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who recognize their helpless state and grieve and mourn over their sin. You know what? That sounds like the gospel to me. It sounds like in the, in the beginning of, of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is laying out the foundation of the gospel to me. That's what it sounds like to me because you need to know that to be saved. Let me tell you something. The gospel is a powerful thing, Christian. It will save you. It will give you an eternity in heaven. But even as a Christian, it will bless your life. The gospel is an important thing this morning. You must mourn over the fact that and grieve over disobeying the command of God. You have to mourn over the fact that you messed up. And like the the hymn that said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. You're prone to wander. Prone to leave God. David did this all the time. Psalms 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalms 126, 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Psalm 32, 3. When I kept silent about my sin, and that's what the world wants you to do, Christian. That's what the devil wants you to do. The devil wants you to keep silent about your 
your sin. Listen to what happens when you do that. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with a fever heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Christian, God wants us to be a mourning people. He wants us to be a grieving people. If I watch my wife fall and get hurt, if I ignore her, that's not going to be a good thing. It's not going to be a good thing. If I ignore her, I don't acknowledge the fact that she's hurt. Or if I laugh at her. <laughs> and I laugh at her for, for whoo, it's not going to be a fun day in the Martin household if I do that. I tell you, it's not. If I take joy in her pain. But if I say, oh, no, I'm so sorry. Let me help you up. Let me dust you off. Let me get a Band-Aid and some Neosporin. I'm so sorry that you got hurt. Is there any, what can I do to make it better? And I do my best to make it better. Man, that would show that I had sympathy. And I had empathy for what she's going through. Did you know that sin is an offense to God? That sin hurts God? And a godly sorrow will show God you care. A godly sorrow will show him how much you care. All right, so question number two. How do I mourn? How do I mourn? For the world, happiness is ignoring sin. But for Christian, we are commanded to deal with it. We don't ignore it. As Christians, we deal with it. Flip over to 2 Corinthians 7. Second Corinthians 7, verse number 10. Now we're going to go through this verse statement by statement. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God. Stop right there. There is a sorrow that we are supposed to have that is woven into the will of God. This is important to understand. Because what this verse is going to do is not only going to explain to a Christian how to get right with God, it's also explaining the gospel to the lost. Okay? For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance. So godly sorrow, godly grief will produce in us a repentance. Now, I have to explain this because we have the wrong idea in the church when it comes to repentance. Repentance does not mean quit sinning. That is not what it means. God commands us to repent, and if that's what it meant, we are all in a bunch of trouble. Because if I have to repent 
to get right with God, nobody will ever get right with God if it means quit sinning. If I have to quit sinning to get saved, we are all in a bunch of trouble. That's not what it means. Repentance does not mean quit sinning. Repentance is a turning. It is a turning away from something towards something. That's what repentance is. You do not have to repent before you go to God. The act of going to God is repentance. Repentance is a turning. The act of turning towards God, the act of coming to God is repentance. The verse says, produce repentance leading to salvation. Look, repentance isn't all that salvation is, but it is 100% necessary. It is a 100% necessary step. You have to turn away from your works. You have to turn away from the path you've been going on. And you have to turn in faith to Christ. Turn in faith to him. Repentance and faith are two sides to the same coin. And you're repenting from your own effort. You're repenting from your own works. I have to admit to God, God, the way I've been doing it is wrong. It's time for me to start doing it your way. And for the lost, that means salvation. Now, Christian, I firmly believe that once you were saved, you're always saved. You didn't earn your salvation. You can't earn on it unearn it. If I have to work to get it and I have to work to keep it, it's work. It's work salvation and salvation is not of works. We're justified by faith and not by works. Okay. But as a Christian, you'll repent for the rest of your life. It's not a one-time deal. Paul said, I die daily. How did he say it? In Romans 7, he said, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I do, I don't want to do. See, I have the desire now to follow after the things of God where before I didn't. But that sin's still a part of me. And it's something I have to deal with every day. And I have to deal with it. And I, I have the desire, but I have to deal with that sin. Let's go back to the verse produces a repentance without regret. You will never regret, never regret repenting of sin. Listen, when I was a kid, I had a bedtime. I hated my bedtime. It was 9 o'clock. Couldn't stand it, okay? I especially hated my bedtime when I had, there was company over at the house because I, was, I didn't want to go to bed because I was afraid I was going to miss something. So I'd be in my bed, and then if there was company over, I'd get out of my bed, and I'd sneak to the door, and I'd crack the door open, I'd listen. Sometimes I'd get caught, sometimes I wouldn't. But I was afraid I was going to miss something. And we don't repent of sin because our flesh thinks, man, I'm going to miss that sin. But I'm telling you, God has something better for you than that sin. And we'll get to that, and just I'll show you that in the Scripture in just a minute. But the sorrow of the world produces death. How do I know if my sorrow is godly? How do I know if it produces a true repentance? It will produce one of two things. It will either produce death 
or it will produce a change. One of those two things. Okay, how does it produce death? What are the wages of sin? Death. If you continue in your sin, what is that going to produce? Death. When we sin, something dies. Every time. Every time we sin, something dies. When Eve ate of the fruit, did she die immediately? Not physically. Spiritually, she dropped dead right there. She spiritually died right there. And every time we sin, something God has for us is taken away from us. Something dies every single time. Okay, so if it's not true sorrow and it's not true repentance, it will produce death. Think about Pharaoh. How many times in the middle of a plague did Pharaoh say, oh, I'm so sorry. Take the children of Israel. Take them. Go. And then the plague is lifted and Pharaoh goes, no, I changed my mind. There's no change. All it did was bring more death to Egypt. That's all it did, is it brought more death to Egypt. But if it produces in us a change, well, then it was godly sorrow. Listen, being sorry for your sin is not the same as repenting of your sin. It's not, think about all those examples I gave you earlier. They were all sorry. Sorry they got caught. Sorry that it looked bad on them, but didn't change anything. So how do I do this? How do I have a Christ-centered, how do I mourn in a Christ-centered godly way? True godly mourning is a genuine admission of your sinful state and will produce in you repentance that will lead to change. So that's the merits of mourning for spiritually mourning. If it's true godly sorrow, it will lead to true repentance and it will lead to a true change and things will stop dying in your life. Okay? Question number three. Why do I mourn? Why do I mourn? Let's go back to the verse. Let me read it for you. You stay in 2 Corinthians 7. We're not done there, but let me read for you Matthew. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Why do you mourn? For comfort. Can't get much simpler. I mean, he kind of put it out here for us. It can't get much simpler than that. He tells us you mourn so you can be comforted. Let, Let me explain this out. Let's go back to the change. We said that true repentance produces a a change in your life. What does that change look like? If we were to examine the change in our life that takes place because of true repentance, what would that look like? Thank you for asking. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 7, the very next verse, verse 11. For behold, what earnestness this very thing This godly sorrow, godly sorrow, has produced in you what vindication of yourselves. The first thing that it looks like and feels like is is a vindication. 
Okay? The Holman, the Holman Christian Standard said it's a clearing of yourselves. I'm vindicated. I'm clear. I'm, I'm, I'm free of shame. I'm, I'm free of, of guilt. You have to remember that when you were saved, your record was clear. It was clean. It was expunged. It, it was taken away east from the west, deepest part of the ocean. And as Christians, we don't need to forget that. And what true repentance will do is it will produce in us this feeling of not being shackled. This feeling of not being a prisoner to this sin anymore. A feeling of, I am free. You can experience freedom. Man, when Lazarus come out of the grave, bound up in the clothes, and they said to loose him, did he just hop around like that the rest of his life? No, he didn't. He could have. He could have made that choice, but he experienced freedom in Christ. Then it says, what indignation? What indignation? What, what does that mean? If you put in front of me a half gallon of Bluebell two-step ice cream, I'm about to preach some gospel to you now. All right. And what that is, is that is cookies and cream ice cream with chocolate chip cookie dough pieces mixed up in it. Manna from heaven. If you put that in front of me and say, Brett, don't touch that. Boy, you're going to have to watch me like a hawk. You're going to have to watch me now because I'll tear it up. But if you set in front of me a nice, big, layered coconut cake and say, Brett, don't touch that, you don't have to worry about me. I'm good. I, I, I'm good. I promise you. Listen, it's not the t I love the taste of coconut. It's a texture thing. It's a texture thing. Chew, to me, chewing on coconut is like chewing on loose leaf paper. It doesn't do anything for me. I am not tempted in it in the least. I, I, I don't like it. Now, listen, um, what this indignation is, is he's saying God has the ability to take a sin in our lives that we struggle with and through true repentance, make that sin disgusting to you. Make it to where you hate it and where you used to go back to it every single time. You don't want to go back to it anymore because you hate it now. It's disgusting to you. You do not want anything to do with it. That's called victory and it is possible in the life of a Christian through godly sorrow and true repentance. Next, it says what fear? Fear what? We're only commanded to fear one thing in the Bible, and that's fear God. That's the fear it's talking about. It's the only thing in the Bible we're commanded to fear, and it's fear God. And the fear of God is not like falling into a, to a lion's den at the zoo. That's not, that's not what true fear is, although that might put the fear of God into you. Um, true fear of God is like you fear your dad. You love your dad, you honor your dad, you respect your dad. But you know, if you cross daddy, he'll take that belt and, and as he pulls it out through the loops, he'll go, 
And he'll pull that belt out, and you know he'll do that. But even after he punishes you, and even after he corrects you, you still love him. See, that's what the fear of God is like. What is fear? Fear of God, it's knowing that God goes everywhere you go. He sees everything you do. He knows every thought you have. He knows everything about you. And when we mess up, He is there watching us. And having the fear of God will keep us from falling back into that sin again. Then it says, what longing? A spiritual mourning that causes spiritual repentance will give you a spiritual longing where you long for the things of God. Do you, do you long for, you long for the God of the Bible? You long for spiritual things. Do you long for worship? Do you long to, for your prayer time? Do you long to learn His Word? And let me tell you something, if you desire God, more than you desire your sin, you will pick God over your sin. That's what true, a true mourning and a true repentance will do for you. Then it says, what zeal? Zeal has to do with heat, with fire. You're on fire for God and on fire against sin. What avenging of wrong, even like we said, even though you're, you're wrong, even though you've messed up, you, 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 you've sinned, you're vindicated. You're, you, you've proclaimed innocent. The measure of a Christian isn't whether they sin or not. The measure of a Christian is whether they repent or not. That's the true measure of a Christian. Not that you sin. It's that, does a, do, are you going to repent? That's the measure of a Christian. It says, in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. If I mourn over my sin, if I have true godly sorrow that will lead me to uh, a true repentance and I will get to this place of feeling innocent. And that, my friends, is comfort. Let me explain. You're in prison. You messed up. You did something stupid. And now you're in prison for a long, long time. You've served some of your sentence. You've served, you served, served a good portion of it. Ooh, but you got so much left to serve. And then one day, the phone rings. And on the other end of the phone is the President of the United States of America. And he says to you, hey, I know you messed up, but I'm looking at your sentence here. Man, it's way harsher than I think it should be. I think it's way too long. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a pardon. And even though you've messed up, and even though you, you, you broke the law, and even though you deserve this, I'm giving you a pardon. You are free. You are clear. You are innocent. Now, let me ask you something. If that were you, would you not be comforted? I think we would be. 
I think we would be comforted by that. And for the lost, I'm telling you, that is what God can do for you. God can take the, the sin in your life and, and, and you repent of that sin and He can make you innocent and free and clear and become a child of God. And Christian, He can give you the same feeling. We, we fall into sin. Man, I bet you when Peter ran out on Jesus weeping, he longed for something to bring him back into a right relationship with Christ, and he found it. This comfort in this beatitude, it's in the future tense. It means you don't automatically get it. You have to mourn first. You cannot be comforted until you mourn. You cannot be comforted spiritually until you spiritually mourn. But after you do that, you can experience His comfort. Psalms 34, 18, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Say, godly sorrow will bring you so close to God because it gives God an opportunity to wrap His arms around us. See, but that comfort can't, is not only experienced here when we do this on the earth, it will be experienced in the kingdom to come, in the millennial kingdom of Christ. Jeremiah 31, 13. The, then the virgin will rejoice in dance and the young men and the old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrows. I will fill the soul of priests with abundance and my people will be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. The millennial kingdom is a promise to the children of God, a promise to Christians. And in the millennial kingdom, He will give us the comfort that we need. Whatever comfort we don't get here on the earth, bless God, when we get to the millennial kingdom of Christ, we will be comforted. But that's not where it stops. It keeps going. Because there's coming a day when you won't need comforting anymore. You see, if there's no mourning, there's no comfort. You see, there's coming a day when you won't need to be comforted anymore. Revelation 21, 4, and He will wipe away every, every, every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Doesn't that sound great? No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. No more death. Everything God doesn't want, He's going to throw into the lake of fire and get done with it and be finished with it. And we will experience that. We won't need to be comforted anymore because there will be no more mourning. I'm here to tell you today, if you have not experienced the, the, the awesome, gracious gift of salvation, today is the day you have to do it. And following in on the way Jesus said it is you have to be poor in spirit. You have to be spiritually poor and understand you have nothing to offer. You have nothing to give God. There's no good work that you can do. There's nothing you can pay. Nothing at all. And then you have to mourn over, you, over your sin. And if you admit to God that you are a sinner, I am a sinner, God. I deserve death. I fall short of your glory. 
I deserve to be separated from you eternally. I deserve hell. But then that comes that repentance. That mourning brings that repentance where you turn away from the world and turn away from the path you're on and you turn in faith to Jesus. And when you turn in faith to Jesus, you believe in the gospel and you believe in the death burial and resurrection of Jesus you put your faith in his blood to wash away your sin and you are justified you are reconciled to the father and with your mouth confession is made unto salvation and you put your faith in him and you will be made a child of God maybe there's a Christian in here you've slipped off into some sin Repent. Get right with God. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm I'm so sorry I did that to you, God. I'm so sorry I messed up. I feel so guilty about it. Man, I'm just disgusted with myself. If that's true sorrow, it will be followed by a change. Be followed by a change. If you're truly, truly sorrowful, if you have godly sorrow, the same godly sorrow that saved you will keep you in a right relationship and fellowship with the Father in your Christian life. That's one of the ways we as Christians use the gospel to be blessed. 